Well, good morning. Morning. At least my wife said good morning. <laughs> so I want to get us started this morning, um, and I want to just read a few verses. And these verses, I want to just kind of use them to kind of set our minds and our hearts and kind of understanding uh, what we're going to talk about and what we're going to discuss together today. Um, and so, if you have your Bible, you can open there to Genesis chapter 3. If not, you can look up on the screen, because um, I'm going to go from Genesis, then Proverbs. And so, I'm just going to read a bunch of couple things real quick, so you might not be able to flip to all of them. So, maybe just look up there. I don't know. Anyway, Genesis chapter 3, verse 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, You must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 8 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Proverbs 21, verse 2. A person may think in their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. And then finally, Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says this. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let me pray for us, and then we'll talk about some things. Oh, Father, thank you that we get to speak to you, that we get to speak to you not just this morning, but we get to speak to you anytime throughout the week and throughout the day, and that you are a God that listens and that answers and has the power to change, and not just change our surroundings, but to change us. So, Father, I pray that we would see you this morning. Pray that your spirit would teach us, that you would guide our time. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Tommy, I got a little bit of feedback uh, all the time when I'm, it's kind of like echo. If you can turn that down just a hair. So, we're in the beginning of a series that we're calling uh, Making All Things New. Really how Jesus transforms our cultural moment. And today, uh, we're going to talk about a bunch of different topics throughout this. But today, I want to talk about the human condition and finding significance. So the human condition and finding significance. Really what we're, what we're doing in this series, what we're talking about is, is how do we interpret our lives um, in light of the culture we live in? And how do, we, how, do we, how do we live and how do we interpret our lives in light of that based on how do we actually live in light of God's story? So how do we live in God's story within the culture that we live in and all the different things that are going on? So how do, we, how do we interact and how do we view culture and view ourselves from God's perspective um, rather than from our own perspective or from our culture's perspective? And so really that's what we're going to talk about in this series because the reality is that, that cult, what culture says and what culture believes is a very powerful motivator. 
And this is true both in, in large culture and in small subcultures, for good or for bad. Culture has a, has a powerful, has a powerful motivator. Culture really has this ability to, to write a story in our hearts, a story that defines our being, um, or defines our identity. And then out of that storyline, we then interpret all things around us. And the problem becomes that just because we, we think about that or we interpret it in light of those things doesn't mean that that's the correct interpretation of how things actually are. Um, I'll give you a little story about me. Maybe this will help. Um, this may be, I don't know, the truth about me. Some of you know that, that I'm very competitive. Um, if you've ever played any games in my house, you may know that. Um, but I, I grew up as an athlete. Um, a big part of who I am and what I was about um, was that I was an athlete. And, and one of the things as an athlete that I found out very, very quickly um, was that I was very fast. I found this out at, a, at an early age. I was always faster. I could run faster than anyone else I ever played with. At, at actually, at eight years old, was the very first time I got into newspapers for like winning a race in Philadelphia. Um, it was like a Fourth of July event. It was one of these things, and then I got like ten dollars. I thought I was rich, right? Um, but, but I, I this. This idea of running fast was like always, always in me. Actually, from a kid, my mom tells me that I never actually walked. I just actually stood up with my hands behind my back and just started running. <laughs> and I would just do that, and, and this is how I would run. Then I would hit something, and then I would fall down, and then I would get back up, and I'd run again. This, this didn't go so well one time for my sister Stephanie, who stepped out in a hallway, and I just ran right into her. She flipped up in the air, hit the ground, and I just kept on running with my head down. And that, that story really kind of defines my athletic career. I was going to outrun you. I was going to knock you over. I was going to look you in the eyes and dare you to get back up. I was going to run harder than anyone else. And regardless of the pain that I was in, I was going to keep pushing until you faded. And as you faded, I would look at you and I would push a little bit more so that you wouldn't come back. That was my life. That's how, that's how I thought. That's how I lived. That was my story. And it worked out at a very high rate of success for me. I know some of you in here are artists, and you're like, what in the world is he even talking about? Do, do athletes even think that way? Um, yes, most of us do, um, and we can explain it to you later, maybe. Um, but, but if I'm honest, that story uh, in my life really defines, uh, in some ways, um, how I still think today. Uh, I know I'm, I'm pushing 50, a couple of years, I'm close to there, maybe two years, um, but as I, as I think about that, and as I look around, as even as I look around this room, and I think about um, this block, and even like within a mile radius, my head often goes, there is no one in this room that can beat me in a race. Like, for real. I believe that. Like, if you pushed me, I would probably go out there in these shoes and race you on the street, and just show you that I'm faster than you. And, and there's... There's no fear in me at all in any one of you. Now, Juan may give me a little bit of a run, but, but I'm not afraid of Juan. I'm pretty sure that I would smoke him still. Like, that's, that's who I am. That's like this, th yeah, I'll, we may have to afterwards, um, just so that I can prove to you, right? Because that's really what defined me and what I thought about and what I acted, and I was like, this is going to give me significance, 
And I want to say this doesn't just happen to us personally. I think this happens neighborhood-wide. It happens, you know, like uh, what tract, what side of the tracks you grew up on or, or what family you were a part of. And that, that changes what you think about your story. I think it changes where you, what city you grew up in thinks about and how you will interpret life. I grew up in Philly, and we have this different mentality in Philly oftentimes. I think it not just happens in cities. I think it happens in our country. This idea of the, the American story is so ingrained in our hearts, we don't even realize how much of our views in life are actually based on it. And that doesn't just happen in our country. It happens in every country around the world. I've had the privilege and opportunity to travel to many, many countries over the years, and every place that I've ever been to, it's the same. People have a story in that culture that actually they live their life under, and they base the truths of what they believe based on the story that they lived within. I was talking to Jared this week. I Actually, I asked him if I could share this um, and so it's okay, but it's not a big story. But anyway, I, I was talking to Jared this weekend. He has started a new job, and one of the, the things in the first day of his job, um, they had this big portfolio that he has to read through of different countries and how they interact and how they think about the same exact thing. And so the story of each one of those countries changes the way that they think and interact about the same thing that you would say to them or how they would approach it. Well, we, how we... The cultural that we live in, the story that we live in, often helps us or think about interpreting truth, and we base our truth on those cultural norms. In the 17 and 1800s, in the United States, depending on, on where you lived, and the, that culture defined your value of what you placed on a person based on their skin color. And not just in the South, but also in the North, where more and pe- more people migrated and the countries were coming in, people were isolated and oppressed. Often, Polish people were seen as weak-minded. In 1700s, 1800s, Asians were actually seen as uneducated and unskilled people and placed in camps and rail- to build railways. The value of humans was placed on, based on cultural norms and the truth of that time. And this isn't just a problem that we had in our country, but worldwide. People often place value based on what they think about people and what the cultural norms are about people, and then we put them in certain categories in our minds. It's why this really why many people moved to this country in the first place is because they were they were being they were being oppressed in their own cultures. World War II highlights that, right? Uh, that issue kind of got highlighted for the world where, where the Germans and the story of their, believed the story of their culture and that allowed them to justify horrific acts against Jews of many, many nations. You can look back over any time and place in history and you will find that the story of that culture defines what humans think and act upon and it's based on their society and where, where we believe we're going to gain value and significance based on those stories. This is a systematic human problem where everyone continues to do what is right in their own eyes. It started in the garden in that first verses that we read where the first humans chose to believe the story of the serpent over the story of God. And it's continued ever since. 
This is not a new problem in our city. It's not a new problem in our culture. This is a historic human problem. No culture is immune to it. And we are always searching for significance in our own stories. We're in this constant search for significance. And I think it's easy for us often to, to kind of look at other cultures or look at other people and say, man, I would never. They are so stupid. How could they ever think that? How could they have believed that? We're so progressive now, right? Like, we would never dream of that. But the reality is there is nothing new under the sun in the search for significance. And it continues to play itself out over and over and over again. I want to stop and ask a question. As you think about the story of of our culture, how does our culture define significance? In this moment, in this city, in this country, what are the things that our culture says will bring a human value? Whether they're true or not, what are some of the things? How many people follow them on Instagram? How many people follow you on Instagram? Yeah. I don't even post on Instagram ever, and I think I have like 200 followers. (laughs) And no, that's not much. But I think it's pretty good for not posting ever. (laughs) Right? What else? So nobody likes their stuff on TikTok. Yeah, that's what's big in your school. That defines your value in your school. Yeah, good. What else? Money, wealth. Money or wealth. How much money you have or how much wealth you're able to accumulate gives you value and significance. Okay, good. What else? Travel and experience. Well, travel and experience? Yeah, where you've been, what you've seen, what you've experienced. That, that makes you more valuable or significant. Okay, good. What else? Okay? Yeah, where you're from or, or where you want to say you're from now. Yeah, good. Okay, yeah. How well I've been able to do in my career. Have I been able to reach the pinnacle? Am I successful in what I'm doing? Or am I, or am I going towards that? Yeah, good. What else? Physical prowess. Running fast. Yeah. Can... I don't think anybody can beat me. I'm still saying that. Um, yeah. How big we are, or how skinny you are, or what you look like. Yeah. Often we define value and significance based on what we look and what, what our culture says we're supposed to be like. Yeah, good. What else? How many people like you? How many people actually like you? Yeah, how many friends do you actually have? Yeah. Yeah. What else? If you've made an impact, yeah. If you made some sort of impact, well, however you define that, yeah, good. That gives you value or significance. If you, you have hair or not, yeah. I ran so fast, my hair just fell right off. That's what happened. Yeah. Yeah, what else? It's aerodynamic. <laughs> Mm, yeah, I'm different than anybody else, and I, I'm going to define myself. Yeah, good. Yeah. There's so many things that, that our culture says will define you and will give you significance. 
I, I like cars. I was thinking about this this week. It's really kind of crazy. Here in L.A., like if you drive a Prius, that's a cool car. But you go to like Texas, you go to like other places in the country, you're like, that is not a cool car. <laughs> right? Like our culture and our story like defines the things. And we, we think about those things. And we, we, we use our lives based on those things. I think there's, it's one thing to, to see it, to diagnose it, to say like, oh, I, I'm not going to do that anymore. But it's another deal to actually deal with the, with the root of the problem. And so I want to look at a story in Exodus um, where, we, where we see God's people deal with this issue. And if you know the story of, of Israel, you know that, that God comes to Abraham and God makes a promise to Abraham and he makes a covenant with him and he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And as time progresses, uh, lots of stuff happens. And as the family grows, um, they end up in Egypt. And after a few hundred years in Egypt, um, they become a larger and larger people group, and they become a nation, and they become a nation that's oppressed, and actually a nation that's turned into slaves. And God sees their oppression, and he miraculously rescues them out of Egypt, and and they begin to travel into the promised land. And and as they're traveling, God continues to, to bless them. He provides food for them. He provides water for them. As they're walking through the desert, uh, he keeps them cool during the day and he keeps them warm at night. And, and he's, he's, he's taking them to the promised land. And they, they stop at the foot of Mount Sinai, this mountain, and so that God can give them some instructions. And God calls, God calls Moses and Aaron, who's the chief priest, to, to come up the mountain. And so they go up to the top of the mountain and, and God tells them, he said, he said, I want you to go back down and I want you to tell people not to come close to the mountain. Because I'm, I'm going to descend on the mountain, and if people come too close, they're going to die. In Exodus chapter 19, this is what happens. 19, starting in verse 16. And on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountains and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. And the smoke of it up went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of trumpets grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Let's just stop there for a second, because I don't know if you can kind of imagine this scene if you're, if you're out camping at the base of a beautiful mountain. I know the South Bay, um, the Verdando Missional Community is out camping right now. They're probably camping near some mountain. But you're, you're at this mountain, and, and all of a sudden there's this giant thunderstorm, and there's lightning, and you can see at the top of the mountain there's smoke, and it probably looks like a volcano is going off or something, and it's getting ready to erupt. And there's an earthquake, and there's these crazy loud trumpets blasting, and the, the voice of the Lord is calling your friend out of your tent, to go and say, come up the mountain to meet me. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty crazy. And if it's me, I'm like, there's no way I'm going up there. Like, I'm, I'm going to be, I'm just outrun everyone, right? And the, the last person's going to get burnt, right? I, and it's like, 
what is going on here in their cultural story? What is, what's going on in the story of this nation? Really, this idea that really is, is God is making a point. God is saying to, to this people group, I'm a big deal. I'm the big kahuna. Um, I'm the supreme power. I'm showing you myself so that you will never forget. He's saying, I am the main point. I am the significant one. And so Moses goes up the mountain and he comes back down and God speaks to his people. He speaks in this loud voice. And this is what happens in chapter 20. This is what God says in chapter 20, verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Basically, in one sentence, God is reminding them who he is. He's saying, this is who I am and this is what I've done for you. He's saying, all the moments in your story, all the things in your life, your, your life in slavery in Egypt, your family, the story of how you got rescued, all the things that you've experienced in your life, they don't define you. They only define you as far as if you see me as the main point in those stories, in those experiences. God is saying, I am the one. God is saying, look at what I've done. I want to summarize my story. I want to summarize your story for you in one sentence. I am supreme. I am great. I am glorious. I am the one that loves you. I'm the one that's patient. I'm the one that's merciful. I'm the one that's just. I am the one that who's the God above all other gods who delivered you from Egypt. I'm the God who set you free. You now are my people. And because of all of that and because of who I am and what I've done for you, I want to tell you some things God is saying. I want to give you some, some, some words. I want to help you interpret life in your exact moment of where you are right now. And so take a look at what God says in verse 3. Remember, he's speaking this in a loud voice from the mountain, the shaking, smoke, and fire. And he says this, You shall have no other gods before me, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. So God basically is saying, don't make any idols that look like things I actually created. Don't worship other gods. Don't don't worship anything else except for me. And then after this, what happens is God actually, he speaks and he gives them the rest of the Ten Commandments. And the people get together with, and they go to Moses and they're like, Moses, can, can you actually just go up and talk to God? And we'll listen to whatever you say he tells you because when God talks to us this way, it's too scary. We're, we're freaked out. We, we, we don't want to hear this anymore. We can't handle the volcano and the thunderstorms and the earthquake and the trumpets. Can you just go talk to him, Moses? And look what Moses says to them in verse 20. Moses says to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. You may have heard it said before in the Bible that you're supposed to fear God, and that maybe you've wondered what that means. Um, The fear of God doesn't mean that you're supposed to be afraid of him. The fear of God means that you're actually supposed to reverence him. What this verse is saying is saying, don't be scared of God, actually revere him. Don't be afraid of him wiping you out actually respect him and listen to what he says through your obedience. Moses says, 
what, what he says is the only truth that will define you. It's the only truth that where you'll find significance and value is in actually fearing what God actually says. So what happens in the next three chapters is, is Moses goes back up and down like five times up the mountain. He was this big mountain climber. He was in good shape, I'm sure. Um, but each co- time he comes down, he, he relays God's message to his people. And then he goes back up and he comes back and he relays God's message to his people. And he gives them all these different laws about how to worship him and how to hold feasts in God's honor. And basically, God is telling his people, he said, three times a year I want you to come and I want you to, I want you to throw a party for me. I want you to hold a party in my honor. And then God finishes by saying, I'm going to go ahead of you and I'm going to lead you to the promised land. And in chapter 24, the response to all the stuff that God has said to them, um, they say this in chapter 24, verse 3. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Basically, we will be obedient. We will live in light of God's story. We will live in light of God's story and be the most supreme thing in our lives. What's going on here is it's, it's very similar to a marriage ceremony where God is, God is giving the details of, of his covenant with Abraham and how it's going to get worked out. And he's saying, it's like a, a husband and wife standing there and the pastor says, will you do this? Do you promise to do this? Will you love? Will you cherish? Will you honor? Will you care for the rest of your days? And Moses is saying this to Israel and Israel and the people say, we will do this. They basically say, I do. So then what happens is, is after they say this, God calls Moses to come back up again. And so Moses goes back up the mountain, and he goes up this time. This time he's up for 40 days. And Moses is getting more information about God and how to, how to sacrifice and how to build a tabernacle. And these are the things and the items that I want you to put in it. And while Moses is up there for a little while, and the people can still see the glory of God on the mountain, there's still the, the big clouds and smoke and all up there, And in Exodus 32, this is what happens. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. This is amazing, right? They just said, God said, I'm going to go before you. And they said, yes, we'll follow you. And they're like, we have no idea what happened to Moses. Let's go back and live our life on a base on, on this old story that we used to live. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early in the next day and burnt offerings, and offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. There's no hesitation in them here. There's no remembering of what God had said to them. They're like, what earthquake? What thunderstorm? What loud voice? What, what, what? Just bring me your gold. 
Bring me your gold. Let's make something. And if you remember the story of the Israelites, where they got these gold earrings from, they were given them on the way out of Egypt. As God is rescuing them from slavery, God blesses them and they plunder the Egyptians on their way out. God had given them all those things they had just made into something else. God had just talked to them about how to build an altar and what an altar should look like. God had just said, throw me a party to me, the true God. And here, step by step, they're undoing everything. All the specific things God had just said to them, that they just committed to, to live in light of, they're now saying, this golden calf is more significant. My old life story is more significant. Let's live under that story. Basically, they had just said their wedding vows. They said, let's live under that story. They basically just said, let's, we will do it. I will do it. We'll do all that the Lord said. And then they're turning away and they're finding value in something else that they knew they had just made with their own hands. It's, it's like this, this may sound hard, but it's like a spouse committing adultery on their honeymoon. The so husband and wife get married and they go away. And two days later, one of them is sleeping with someone in, while their spouse is sleeping in the other room. That's what's going on here in that story. And what we see in this story is that this idea that one's culture has such great power to cause us to change and to view the moments that we're in and as humans, we're quick to believe another story. We're quick to listen to something else rather than listening to the voice of God. And I want to say we are no different than the Israelites that are in this story. We have the same propensity, I mean, I didn't even say that word, to say, yes, God, I believe this is better than you. To say, God, I believe you're the best. And then walk out the door and walk into some other cultural moment and say, this actually dictates who I am. This is, this is more significant. This is more important. This scene that we see here in Exodus is really the, the quintessential picture of idolatry. I think it's what we think about when we think about it most. It's, it's how it's depicted in movies where people are bowing down to some, something and they're chanting at an idol. And it makes us easy to, to kind of look at that and say, I would never do that. I've never done that. I've never bowed down to an idol. I don't have any gold statues around my house. But I want you to listen to this quote from G.K. Beale. He says this, The exchange of truth for a lie is the essence of idolatry. And idolatry, in turn, underlies all sin. It's the idea that basically every time you and I sin, you and I are worshiping some little gold head that we've made. Now, idolatry kind of sounds primitive, but I want to say it is alive and well. And it, it pervades our culture, and it, it's part of our human condition. If I just have this, if I just was able to accomplish that, then my life would have meaning. Then I would know that I have value. Then I would feel significant. I would feel secure. Basically, idolatry is saying, God, you don't satisfy me. You don't give me significance. You don't give me any security. 
I'm looking elsewhere to find it. I will find my value in what the culture says is important. What that story says will give me significance in my life. I will prove that I'm significant. I will prove that I'm valuable. We go try to prove over and over and over again in our lives. I think this idea of proving plays out in many different ways. Um, it, it can look like trying to prove ourselves to ourselves. For me, that, that can look like becoming a workaholic. I can work so hard to prove that I'm right or that I'm able to accomplish something so I can feel good about myself. Or I can prove that I can outrun you on the street. I'm going to prove to myself that I'm still fast. As you think about this idea of proving ourselves to ourselves, what are some ways that that plays out in your own life or plays out in our culture where, where we're trying to prove ourselves to ourselves? No one does it. No one's ever tried to prove themselves to themselves. and the proving it to ourselves is also proving to someone else. We'll talk about that one in a second. But yeah. It's also, to some extent, like winning over people that I like admire and think are awesome. Like, if I have the shiniest, coolest friends, then, they probably, then that means that I am also shiny and cool. Mm. Yeah. I think it also looks like if I'm trying to prove myself to myself, then it shows up in not taking any advice or counsel in any way and just not listening, you know, like blah, 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 blah. No one can tell me what to do. Yeah. Yeah, I'm more spiritual than someone else. Yeah, good. I think often the, the number one created thing that I worship is the created thing that I see looking back at me in the mirror. But I would say that, that we don't only try to find value by proving ourselves to ourselves. Casey, you were getting at this, but I think we often find valuable value in, in what other people say. We have this, this appetite or desire to find value in what other people think of us. We want to prove ourselves right, but we also want others to be impressed by us. And so oftentimes we hide so people won't actually find out what we truly are inside. We want to fit in. 
And so we wear a mask. We hide behind our real selves. And this problem with, with trying to prove yourself to other people is what happens is they then become the standard. The cultural norms become the standard. And even if those norms are godly, we end up living in obedience to other people rather than obedience to God. And I think we can even settle for looking like other people when it, when it fails to settle for actually live, looking like Jesus. I think another big way this plays out is we, we attempt to find value or significance by proving ourselves to God. I don't think this is just a Christian thing. I think this is culturally, we have this, this underlying theme of earning favor with God. If I live a certain way, God will be impressed with me. And if God's impressed with me, then he'll bless me in some way. If I do this, God will save me and I won't be in trouble. The problem is that's not how God works. God isn't just sitting around waiting to hand out some candy when we do something right. God's grace is not dependent on you and me and what we do. You see, the grace of God is a very, is a very simple thing to understand, and yet it's very, very hard to grasp. It's not the complexity that makes it difficult. The problem is that we seem to be hardwired to think that we must do something in order for God to look favorable on us. We have this condition where we want, to, we want to self-atone for our sinful hearts. I think it's so that we can take the credit and then we can then be held up as valuable in our condition. That's our human condition. That's who we are. And if this is our condition, I want to see what God's response to this is in Exodus. Verse 7. Just remember this is seen with the, the golden calf and everything. And the Lord said to Moses... Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I've commanded them. And they've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Please know here, God sees your adulterous accusations. He sees what's going on. God knows what's going on in their hearts. He hears it, he sees it, and it breaks his heart. Verse 9, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation out of you. What God is saying to Moses is, he's saying, I'm still going to keep my covenant with Abraham like I promised. But from Abraham to this huge group of people that I was covenanting towards, I'm going to reduce that back down to one person. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. He's basically saying, step back, Moses. I'm getting ready to open up a can on them. He's going to say, I'm about to pour out my wrath on these people for their idolatry. He's like, and really the reality is, God had every right to do it. Look at what happens in verse 11. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? 
Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. So Moses intercedes here for the people. Instead of stepping back, Moses actually leans in. He gets closer to God and he begs him on his behalf of the people. And what happens is God withholds judgment from the whole group. Now, if you know the story, what what happens is God still pours out his wrath. And and if you read on, about 3,000 people end up dying. But the death of some of the lives actually saved the lives of many. So two quick things, I think, to learn from here is this. One, we get to lean into God like Moses did. We get to plead with God on the behalf of our city, on the behalf of our culture, on the behalf of others. We get to ask God to save the city, to save the culture, to remove the false worship, to, to remove all the things that we discussed, that we talk, discussed in the beginning, that we're going to find worship, that we're going to find significance in, that we place value in. We get to be people who talk to God, who talk to our dad, and implore him to change the hearts of others, to change the hearts of our friends, of our coworkers, of our neighbors, of our fellow city mates, of our country, and of ourselves. And we get to speak to a God who actually listens. God listens to Moses here. The second, I think, is this. There's a warning here for us to actually be vigilant and not detach ourselves from the story. We need to think about that you and I are in that same camp with them. That you and I are often bowing down to the golden calf. It might sound ridiculous in some ways, but, but our idolatry is no different. In fact, ours might actually be more ridiculous. Because you've trusted Jesus, and the Spirit of God now dwells in you, and the covenant and that you and I have said yes to is way better than the one they actually said yes to. They were given the law, but the law has now been written on your hearts if you're a follower of Jesus. And the price that was paid for for the ratification of our covenant wasn't the price of, of bulls, the blood of bulls. It was the price of the precious blood of Jesus. And yet, within moments, we walk away and we worship something different. And we need to see the Creator, our Father. We need to see our, His grief over our idolatry. We need to imagine His grief over our continued idolatry. Because I think it's actually greater than the scene we see here in Exodus. We get to imagine his grief as he looks over all humanity. Rightly so, God could say, I'm going to wipe them all out. I'm done with these humans. But the good news is, instead, he actually sends his son Jesus to step forward and intercede. And Jesus actually leans all the way in, and he takes the wrath of God on himself. He leans in way further than Moses went. Moses says, don't don't pour out your wrath. But Jesus says, no, pour out your wrath on me. And God pours out his wrath on his son instead of us. And the death of one saves the lives of countless people. You see, Jesus became like an idolater so that idolaters like you and I could actually become worshipers. 
And if we don't realize that we actually deserved that wrath, and instead someone stood in front of us as God poured out His wrath, if you don't get that, if you don't understand that, you will never turn from the idols that you have in your life. And you will never look to Jesus. And you will continue to live in light of the story that you grew up in and the story of your culture. But if you do, if you get that and you see that, then in your heart you will say, oh man, I cannot believe that he did that for me. I didn't deserve it. He's actually a better God. He's a better Savior. Jesus stepped in and he took the wrath. And now Jesus continues to advocate for you and for me. Each day, this is an ongoing cycle where we turn to idolatry and Jesus says, nope, I've covered that. I took care of that idolatry. I've already paid the penalty for that. I want, you to, I want to call you to find your significance and your value in Him. One last thing here, and I know this is true because I suffer with it in my own life and in my own home. Um, and I think this is something as a church that, that we struggle with. Idol identification has been some, somewhat common in our church family. Gospel fluency has grown to where we can quickly identify an idol and say, my idol is an idol of comfort, my idol is an idol of approval, my idol is an idol of control. It's whatever it is, we can identify it. I want to say it's a good thing that we can identify it, that's a good thing, but I want to ask the question, are we merely content to settle for idol identification? Serious. I'm going to, maybe I'm running out of time, but do you, do you think... That, that we are, are kind of smart or insightful because we're able to pick them out. I don't want us to just settle there. We need to go way past idol identification to idol ratification. Right? Let's not be content with that. Let's only be content with idol replacement. You see, the only thing that will allow you to topple another idol in your life is to replace it with a better God. Idols don't just get removed. They, they're never neutral. They always just get replaced. You need to replace it with something. And worshiping the one true God is the only thing that we should be replacing our idolatry with. And so how do we do that? We repent, and in faith we walk in a new way. And we repent, and in faith we walk in a new way. And we do this over and over and over again. Amen. And so... Don't be discouraged when you fall into idolatry or, when you, or when, you, when you fail to worship God and you have false worship. Instead, exercise repentance and faith. Thank you, Jesus. Be specific. Tell the Father, this, I thought this person was going to bring me significance. I pro- thought this thing was going to give me value. I gave way too much weight to this. I valued this part of the culture's story more than I valued you. I repent of that. We need to knock them down and we need to put Jesus in in those places. There are so many stories that are swirling around out there and we need to be reminded of the only true story. Worthy is the land. (laughs) We need to find our significance in that. The only true story is the story based on God's story. 
and what he's done and what he's said about you and me and every other human. Those of us that, that now have understood that story and that's a part of our, of our new story, you have a new family. You're no longer defined by your race or your biological family or the country that you grew up in, or the side of the block that you grew up in, or whatever it may be, we get to live in a new way. We get to live and think about how the king of the universe would define your life. And we get to live in light of that story rather than some broken down story that our culture wants to tell us is going to be better. If we're going to be people who are about the gospel and about the mission of Jesus, we must first understand and embrace the hope that we have in Jesus. A hope that is more secure than just a hope in ourselves, or a hope in in our abilities, or a hope in a job, or a hope in the economics. We have a hope in Jesus. And that's not just some hopeful thought. It's a hope that's rooted in a guarantee, a guarantee that God was and is and is the one who's choosing us and making us his own. And the more we're amazed by God and his wisdom and his power and his glory and his grace and his goodness and his story, the more we'll find our security and significance and approval and joy and satisfaction in him rather than anything else we think about will bring us truth. You and I and every other person on this planet deserved wrath from God because of idolatry. But Jesus took it on his behalf. And now we get to worship him instead. And that's good news. And we get to live in light of that story, not in any other story that our story tells, in any other story that this culture or any other culture that ever will exist will tell us, will find significance. Our Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that um, you sent Jesus to take your wrath, the wrath that we deserved. Father, we know that is our condition. And yet, we still run back to it. Father, I pray that you would make us people that not only see the brokenness in our lives, but that we would be people that would quickly turn from it, that we would repent, that we would ask you in faith to define us, and that we would live in light of a new story. And Father, we thank you that the good news is that we get the power to do that through the power of the Spirit, that you have given us the ability to live in light of another story regardless of what other things are being said to us. Father, we thank you that you are the only one who matters and that your value and significance is way more than what anyone could say to us, anyone could tell us, even our own hearts would say about us. Father, we thank you that we get to live in light of your story. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.